1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So there's
2: a group of world leaders, the G7, who are meeting in Cornwall in the UK for the next couple of days. We know Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is there. Following that, he will travel to Brussels and Belgium to meet with NATO allies and European officials. There's been an interesting debate about what happens when he comes home. He'll be quarantining at a hotel uh, when he comes home. And, you know, the opposition has been hitting pretty hard on that, saying this was unnecessary, shouldn't have been going on this, shouldn't be traveling. But, you know, not everybody agrees with that. Former Conservative Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird says, listen, Let's not be partisan about this. He said he should qualify as an essential worker. If an airline pilot or flight attendant qualifies, John Baird said as essential service, certainly our Prime Minister and his team, who are there to represent Canadians, should also qualify. So that there's no shortage of things to talk about sort of in the House of Commons on this, but let's find out how the meetings are going this morning. Joining us is Krista Gomansing, our global news European Bureau Chief. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Okay, so what is the news coming out? What's the atmosphere like? This is the first time these leaders have seen each other in, what, a year and a half? Yeah,
3: just over a year and a half, in fact, and it is, you know, obviously a hugely important time. You're sort of highlighting the the pandemic issues and questions around international travel. And, of course, that is a huge issue. And you have these G7 leaders and invited guests coming to Cornwall and, and uh, taking part in this in-person meeting. And it is an important in-person meeting. All of the world has seen their economies collapse because of this pandemic. There is, you know, uh, a desire to bring people together to figure out, you know, how uh, each country is going to recover, how they can support each other in recovering. Uh, It's also going to be the first G7 where U.S. President Joe Biden will be attending. It'll be the last one for uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, and, And to your point, you know, Canada... Does it hurt Canada to not be there, to not be present and be around the table, to be a part of the discussions and be seen? So that is part of the reason for attending as well. And, you know, we already saw Prime Minister Justin Trudeau have his first bilateral meeting that happened with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson a little bit uh, earlier today. Uh, For the most part, the UK and Canada are aligned on pandemic recovery and the need to, you know, improve uh, standards when it comes to the environment, addressing climate change addressing uh, the economy, building, rebuilding the economy and doing that in a green fashion, doing that in a way that supports women and girls. And and also the uh, the big issue that happened and the big issue that uh, has come as far as news-wise so far was that Canada has made an, a commitment to providing vaccines to developing nations. There was a call from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson for uh, the G7 to commit to providing 1 billion doses to developing nations so that everyone could be vaccinated by the end of 2022. Canada today confirming they will contribute 1 million doses. However, a little caveat there, we don't know uh, exactly how many vaccine doses that includes because it does include previously announced uh, doses. So we're going to wait for some more details on that front.
2: It does sound, though, like there's been a lot of cooperation so far.
3: And that will be one of the things that come of of these sort of summits, of the leaders getting together, is standing in front of somebody, looking them in the eye, socially distanced. We're seeing a lot of socially distanced, of course, a lot of elbow bumps instead of handshakes, uh, masks and tests we should say. Um, but it, it's important for these leaders that are saying, listen, we have to be in front of each other. We have to make these commitments. A lot more get done uh, in an in-person meeting than it would, say, over the phone or virtually. Uh, and and you know, We talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago when we saw uh, our Foreign Affairs Minister here in London for the Foreign Affairs G7 Nations meeting. So, sort of a can this be done? Can it be done successfully? And has, is everyone going to stay healthy? So, you know, we, we we had that little bit of a indication that Canada would be attending and the importance to attend. Right. Um, and we are going to see a, a lot of um, maybe not necessarily details, but commitment.
2: So do we expect yeah more information on travel? Is there going to be some kind of agreement, do you think, on how we're going to allow people to travel?
3: That is an interesting one and it's being talked about a lot, but the idea of maybe, uh, let's use the term a travel passport is so rotten, so complicated, uh, you know, with different countries and access and, you know, should someone be, um, you know, penalized because say they have a health condition and can't get vaccinated. So, you know, how will you put these sort of, um, caveats for different people who can't get vaccinated but would in other cases? So, um, that's one that is obviously of great interest. Uh, but whether or not they'll actually come to some sort of agreement and produce something concrete, we really just don't know.
2: All right. Well, thanks so much for the update, Crystal.
4: You're welcome. Take care.
2: You too. That's Crystal Gouman our Global News European Bureau Chief, updating us on the G7 Summit, which is going on in the UK. It's in Cornwall for the next day or two. There's been lots of joviality, right? Lots of, you know, smiles and all of that going on. I guess they're happy to see each other. It's been more than a year and a half. But the the big thing is, are they going to make some agreements when it comes to allowing
1: travel? This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Are you ready to go and see a movie in the movie theater? By the way, I hear if you like musicals, In the Heights is amazing. Uh, BC is on track to hit the next phase of reopening on June the 15th. One of the things that will be available to us is going to a movie, something we haven't done here in BC for a long time, it feels like. So what kind of precautions will theaters be taking? Is it all just back to normal the way it was before? Let's find out. Ken Mont joins us now, Executive Director of Operations for Cineplex in BC. Hi, Ken. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. You must be pretty busy this weekend.
5: It's, it's uh, a pretty busy week leading up to, uh, to Tuesday, hopefully, for us. Yes, we, uh, we're, we're running around getting things ready to go.
2: Yeah, tell us about that process. What has this been like?
5: Uh, the last couple of weeks, just since we uh, we got word that there was a, a possibility or a good chance we could open on the fifteenth, it's it's just been uh, you know recalling staff, uh, getting the, the the buildings themselves uh, set up and re- or reset up to uh, to come back and uh, making sure that we
2: have all the the safety
5: protocols and everything in place uh, for people to to join us again.
2: Okay, so is it going to be just like back to normal? Everything is open, and what kind of precautions are you taking? <laughs>
5: Uh, not quite yet back to, uh, to complete normal. Um, we, we are bound by some of the uh, capacity restrictions. So when we do open on the 15th, uh, we're, we're allowed to have 50 per auditorium. So it'll be uh, very spaced out in there. We've implemented uh, reserved seating in all the auditoriums. So it's very easy to select the seats that you want. Uh, and then on the back end, what we do is make sure that, uh, other seats around you are booked off so that everyone is, is easily and safely distanced. Um, we're staggering our show times so that we can have the, the flow in and out of the buildings um, easily controlled. Uh, and then we're coming back to the uh, the same enhanced cleaning protocols that we uh, put in place last summer when we opened for the first time.
2: Right. OK, so you've clearly got a lot of precautions here uh, that you're going to be taking. Are all theatres going to be opening?
5: Uh, all all theatres in B.C., with the exception of one, which is uh, a brand new theatre that we're opening in uh, Brentwood, which will be a couple weeks behind this, uh, this reopening.
2: Okay, so has everybody come back to work? Were you able to recall all your employees? Uh, we've
5: been we've been very impressed with the number of people who are coming back. Uh, we've lost a few, of course, just like a lot of other businesses. Uh, people have had to move on for for different reasons. Uh, but uh, by and large, our staff are uh, coming back uh, almost in full capacity for us.
2: All right, and the big question here, Ken, is: Can Correct. we buy popcorn? Will the concession Absolutely. stand be open?
5: <laughs> uh, I encourage it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, concession stands will be open. Uh, the, the mask mandate, of course, will will continue for people coming into the building. But uh, if you're in the auditorium, uh, eating popcorn or you know having a soft drink or candy, uh, absolutely, you can take the mask off
2: to do that. All right. So the the how much longer then does it take for your employees now? You have to do the enhanced protocol. What does that mean?
5: Uh, it, really, it's just we focus on all the uh, the high the, the high traffic touch points of making sure they're they're getting wiped down. Uh, on a on a frequent and consistent basis so uh, i don't think people coming in will find too much difference as uh, for any wait times really um, we do have to do uh, contact tracing which takes maybe a couple of seconds longer when you're you're first checking in it uh, with our greeter at the door but uh, beyond that uh, everything else will will seem pretty pretty normal
2: and do you have any indication yet about you know the interest that people have in coming back i know you said you're reserving seats so have there been advanced ticket sales
5: there's been a good number of, of ticket sales already. So as people um, start to realize that we are we are coming back online, uh, the interest is really gaining momentum. And uh, other markets uh, around Canada and around uh, North America are, are seeing very good traction as, uh, as box offices reopen.
2: So, do you, you know, there was a lot of talk during the pandemic that, oh, that's it, nobody's going back to the movie theater, <laughs> they're going to watch these movies at home. Do you think people are ready to come back to the theater?
5: I think people are very much ready to come back to the theater. If there's anything like me, just getting back into an auditorium with people and, you know, laughing at a comedy or, you know, kind of gasping at an action film or whatever, whatever. I I think, you know, I know personally I have, but I know a lot of people who really miss the, the social interaction of watching films together.
2: I think you're so right about that. Listen, Ken, good luck.
5: Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
2: All right. That's Ken Mond, Executive Director of Operations for Cineplex in B.C., Yes, you can go see a movie. Hopefully everything goes on track if we hit that next stage of our reopening plan, which is June the 15th. Just four days from now. One of the things that will open are the movie theaters. And as you heard Ken say, they are getting everything ready. Isn't it weird, though, how, how quickly things change, right? When the pandemic hit and movie theaters closed, all of a sudden you had all these options. Movie studios were releasing big movies um, right away for in home streaming. And everybody was saying, oh, that's it. The, the traditional movie industry is dead. People aren't going back to the movie theaters. And for a while, they're it did seem like that was a possibility but boy enough time went by that as soon as you know people had the chance to go back into movie theaters they are doing so i guess they Really do, we still want to see some films, certain ones anyway, uh, on the big screen. I'll tell you right now, the one that I'm holding out for is the new James Bond movie. I have been waiting more than a year now to see this new James Bond movie, the last one that Daniel Craig is going to be in. And I tell you, I am going to watch that thing on the big screen, even if they made it available in my house and I could watch it at home. I'm ready to go to the movie theater to see that particular movie. How about you? Are you ready to go back to the movie theater and see something? There are some movies out this weekend, as I said, In the Heights. If you like musicals, it's supposed to be fantastic. But yeah, if you're ready to go to the movies, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Maybe you want to wait a little longer, see how things go. Yeah, let me know how you're feeling on that. But they're getting ready for you. As of Tuesday here in BC with some limited capacity, you can go and see a movie.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: It remains an unsolved mystery. There have still been no arrests in the vandalism that caused the shutdown of the Sea to Sky gondola, not once, but twice. It has resulted in multi-million dollar repairs, enhanced security systems, but also a determination to keep the gondola running in spite of the challenges. So today marks a milestone then it's the reopening of the gondola after last September's cutting of the cable. So what precautions are being taken and is it right back to operating as normal? Well, general manager Kirby Brown joins us now with more. Good morning, Kirby.
6: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show.
2: Well, how are you feeling about today?
6: Oh, ready, sealed, ready. Uh, Quite, uh, quite exuberant. In fact, you know, it's a, uh, this is what we do. You know, we're uh, not a big team, we're, uh, but we're a, a team that's passionate about hosting people and helping share what, uh, you know, the Squamish Nation's traditional territories look like in the beautiful backyard of Squamish. So we're, this is what we're about. So having the lift humming in the background is the, sort of the soundtrack to our lives. <laughs> we're I guess. We're going to begin sharing that with everybody. Yeah.
2: Are you a bit nervous, though, given what's happened?
6: Well, you know, I'm not nervous. I, I am highly vigilant. And uh, I think the entire security team, that's our posture for now and forever. Uh, I've been saying it before, you know, but if they caught this person or people tomorrow, our, our security stature would never change now. You know, we're going to be, uh, this is going to be in our bones uh, for the rest of our days. We just could never let anything like that happen again. And, And that's what our system is set up to do, to be uh, highly evolved, uh, preventative and ever-changing so that um, we have the very best chance to make sure that something similar doesn't happen again. Um, And again, you know, there's uh, no way to prevent absolutely everything forever from happening. But there certainly are very advanced techniques and individuals who know how to deploy them that can uh, really make sure that you have the very best chance. So that's what we've done. We've invested heavily uh, and wholeheartedly, you know, from the owners to... Every employee, you know, we, uh, we understand that this is our posture and we're, we're here to keep it.
2: So what has changed then this time? What are you going to be doing differently?
6: Well, so much that I can't talk about, Timmy, but, you know, there's some obvious things that people will see. The cabins come off the line every night onto a beautiful new parking rail. Uh, so they're, uh, they're safe and secure at the bottom. Um, we've done some additional measures along the lift line, as you can imagine, that do things to detect and delay and deter people from approaching any of our infrastructure. And every element of See this Sky Gondola now has a similar posture, whether it's our base area, our summit, uh, our trails, other infrastructure, it's all protected in a similar fashion. And it, and it really comes down to us having uh, a highly professional security team and, and a group of consultants working outside of the company to, to keep, uh, keep us aware of what's changing and evolving so that we can adapt to that as we go along.
2: Okay, so what will people notice then if they come this weekend or in the weeks ahead to ride the gondola?
6: hopefully just a particularly happy and smiley group of employees that are really <laughs> cranking to greet them, you know, the security infrastructure is meant to fade into the background. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not meant to be glaring and in your face, uh, which might be contrary to, you know, a, a nuclear facility or something similar where, uh, you know, you, they definitely want it to be known. If you're hiking some of the trails, you'll definitely see signs saying there's surveillance, etc., and to stay away from infrastructure. But apart from that, it really falls into the background and, uh, and let's just get back to, uh, again, just, just, inviting people into this beautiful space without encumbrance.
2: Right. So where, do you know anything about the investigation at this point, Kirby? Like, did, at any point did you feel like, well, somebody clearly doesn't want us here? Or something like, what is this all about?
6: Well, I think that is absolutely obvious. There, there are individuals that are trying to make a decision for this company, community, town, um, and town, and doing it in, in a reckless and dangerous fashion, endangering people and, and livelihoods along the way. Uh, we know that, obviously. Um, where the RCMP are in their investigation is, an, is, a, is a question that I badge them with, as you can probably imagine, on a re- repeated basis, on a daily basis. Uh, they're highly professional people, and they're, they're doing the job the way that uh, they know how to do it. And uh, I think the less they tell me, probably the better. Um, I'm highly convinced that they, uh, they are working their way to a conclusion. And, and the cl- conclusion, as they continually remind me, isn't just arresting somebody. It's arresting and convicting somebody. And uh, I, I do think that's an important distinction, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's things that they have that they haven't released to the public and, 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 and won't until they need to or, uh, or want to. So um, I, re- I just have to, as, as impatient as I may be, <laughs> I am. I, I, right. I definitely respect that there's a process there at play.
2: Okay, well, how's the community responded to this? Because I know there was a great piece in the Globe and Mail earlier this week kind of talking about the whole mm. story and some of the tensions in the community with the expansion that Squamish has gone under. But what have you heard from the
6: community? Well, I think that that tension in the community is, is sort of echoed across this country, if not this continent, you know, as population growth and, and there's pressure on housing for a whole host of reasons. Squamish being, I believe, the most beautiful spot on the continent, you know, is, is definitely feeling that as well. But in terms of see this guy you know, this is a place that locals love for the most part. Obviously not everybody, but the vast majority are people who are just dying to get back up on the deck on Friday nights. And have a beer and a dance with the, you know, and uh, with their best friends and uh, enjoy the view. Uh, I mean, we, we we, we, are of Squamish. You know, our, our greatest ambition is to just stay Squamish's Gondola and keep this community proud. And uh, We're not trying to do anything fancier beyond that. You know, we, we just uh, uh, want Squamish to be proud of us. So that's been echoed back, you know, driving in yesterday past Sunny Chivas, an awesome Mexican and fried chicken joint in town here. They had a, uh, you know, congratulations to see this guy Gondola and you're reopening on their sign and, and we hear that, you know, a, across all measures. So it's been, it's been really heartwarming both times, you know, and, and, and it, it has been a really tough year. There's been incredible hardship across the planet and, uh, and, and, ours to us seems important and it is, but certainly, you know, we keep that in perspective, right? That people right. have lost people that they love and, uh, and, and that's a whole different, uh, universe of pain. So we're, we're good. You know, we're, we're not asking for anything more than just, uh, people who love us to come by and see us.
2: Okay, and tickets available now? Like, how do they do that?
6: They are, yeah. We prefer, obviously, online during COVID times. There's a right. uh, online to purchase tickets, so do that. If you've got a pass, come on in. There's a new waiver that you need to sign, and that's all. Uh, just, to, you know, tune things up, and away we go. But uh, our uh, our doors open this morning. We'll be running the lift a bit early just to get people up. It's not the most beautiful day. Actually, it is quite beautiful here right now. It's partially cloudy, overcast, but the sunshine, too, so... Uh it's going to be a rainy weekend but that's okay you know we'll we'll, <laughs> be, uh, we'll be here for the we're here for the long haul so we'll see you on the next sunny day too.
2: All right Kirby thanks for your time this morning.
6: Appreciate it Simmy thanks for having me.
1: This is Mornings with Simmy.
2: We know that during the first two waves the COVID-19 pandemic care homes and other facilities for seniors were hit the hardest. Now we have lots of calls growing to make vaccination and rapid testing mandatory in those facilities. Like this has been an ongoing discussion, first of all, for the rapid testing, but now for the vaccination issue. In fact, even the BC Care Providers Association says it should be mandatory for all staff to be vaccinated as a condition of their employment. And they're also calling for rapid testing to be in place for all visitors. So can that happen? It is something the government says they are looking at. But for more on this, we're joined now by Isabel McKenzie, who is BC's Seniors Advocate. Isabel, thank you for being back here.
7: My pleasure. Good morning.
2: What do you think of this idea? Can they make it mandatory for employees?
7: Well, it definitely should be mandatory for employees. And I think that um, I was encouraged to hear yesterday that the government is, in fact, looking at whether it is possible. There, There are two different issues. Uh, We certainly know that we thought we had made some advances several years ago around mandatory flu vaccinations in long-term care, but we have had some setbacks uh, to that by uh, arbitration decisions that, that have been made for certain employee groups. So whether or not it can be, I think is a question that um, may ultimately be decided through either courts or arbitration, whether or not it should be. Absolutely. It, it should be mandatory. It should be what we call a bona fide occupational requirement that you're vaccinated for COVID-19 in order to work in long term care. And then I think the other part, and you spoke about that in your opening remarks around Uh, testing. We do know that no vaccine is 100% effective. We know the stakes are very high in long-term care in terms of the um, uh, seriousness of the virus. If it gets into a care home, we've seen vaccinated uh, residents uh, both contract and die of uh, COVID-19. So I think we have to look at uh, the testing protocols we will still need to have in place, particularly for this upcoming respiratory season uh, fall of 2021.
2: Why is it, do you think, that the vaccination rates have been lower for people who work in care homes? I would have thought the message would have been very strong there.
7: That's an interesting question, Simi, because uh, our office tracks vaccination rates by uh, care home, and we've been reporting on that for several years. And it was interesting to note the first outbreak at uh, Cottonwoods in Kelowna where the vaccination rate for COVID 19 was lower than the vaccination rate for influenza. So, in fact, the influenza vaccination rates for that site were quite high. So, it wasn't a, a vaccination hesitant culture per se that was happening at Cottonwoods because those staff would generally overwhelmingly get their flu vaccine. I think in the very beginning, and I hope we've, we've remedied this to some extent, don't forget that the vaccine was new care home staff were being asked to take this vaccine in December and in January. There was a lot of vaccination going on before it really became uh, prevalent in in the general community like we're seeing now. And it was new and people might have had concerns about it. There were certainly younger care workers who might be pregnant or wishing to become pregnant who may have been concerned about what the impact of that vaccine would be. So there was some understanding of that initially. Now that we've experienced these vaccines, particularly the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, um, the safety of them and the effectiveness of them uh, are clearly evident. And I think that hopefully we will uh, see the uptake uh, increase significantly. Obviously, voluntary is always better, and I think that that will make it easier to impose the mandatory uh, requirement. Usually, what happens is it it sounds more mandatory than it is. so if we if we look back on flu vaccines, uh, you had right. to, it was mandatory to wear if you didn't get the vaccine, you had to wear a mask or you were reassigned to non patient care work.
2: Right, but I think a lot of people would ask the question, in fact, I have emails from some care home workers who say, like, why are you doing the job if you know you're going to be putting people at risk if you don't get the vaccine?
7: I know. And I think that uh, for for many of us, that is a frustration, Simi. It, it, it is, I do not believe it is unreasonable. A person makes a choice to work in long-term care. They make that choice freely And I think that it is not unreasonable to say when you make that choice, you are also obligating yourself to be vaccinated. I don't think that's unreasonable. And uh, I'm obviously sympathetic to people who who have potential reasons, but we do make a choice of Mm -hmm. where to work. And many occupations have requirements.
2: Well, listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning.
7: Okay, my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. You want to weigh in? Simi at
0: cknw.com.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
2: Well, even after cannabis became legal, there were still and there are still people out there who prefer to buy off the black market for whatever reason. And that's what makes this next story so interesting. There was a pilot project done in collaboration with the BC Centre for Disease Control, the provincial government and the National Collaborating Centre on Environmental Health. What they did was they seized, they had 20 cannabis samples that they had seized from illegal pot shops and they sent it to a federally licensed lab for testing. Let's find out what they found out. Joining us now is Mike Farnworth, the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General. Good morning. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. All right, let's talk about these results. Did they surprise you?
8: Um, in many ways, no, they didn't surprise. I mean, it is uh, cannabis that's being produced illegally, but it was uh, very disturbing, given that you often hear, "Oh no, 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 illegal cannabis. There's nothing wrong with it." Um, and the reality is, is that uh, in all but one of the samples, not one uh, met uh, Health Canada standards uh, that are required of legal cannabis. Uh, there were 24 distinct different pesticides found in the uh, the samples along with unacceptable levels of bacteria, fungi, and, uh, and things such heavy metals, such as uh, lead and uh, arsenic.
2: And how did that compare to the legal samples? Uh,
8: legal samples are not allowed to have any lead or arsenic, for example, or pesticide residues or, uh, or bacteria or, or, or fungi in them. Uh, Health Canada has very strict Um, Very strict regulations. Uh, uh, Legal cannabis uh, has to be tested by batches. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, all about ensuring uh, uh, public health and public safety.
2: So is this an effort then, Minister, to try to get that message out there about the safety of the illegal supplier? Are you hoping to try to convince more people to stop doing that?
8: Yeah, no, it's people. You know, when people go to the store, they uh, they they like to know that their their produce, meats, um, you know, is healthy and safe and uh, uh, doesn't have uh, pesticide rep- residues and is and meets Health Canada standards. Uh, the same thing applies to to cannabis. Um, when you buy from a legal retailer, um, someone who's you know played by the rules and. And, and done all the right things, and the, the product that is being sold meets uh, health and safety standards, as opposed to an illegal product which can contain who knows what in the way of pesticides, uh, arsenic, or lead, or, or mercury. Why would you even want to, to to use something like that? That just you know just does not make any sense whatsoever.
2: What do we know about how many people are still buying off the illegal market?
8: Well, what we do know is is that uh, as uh, legalization has uh, since legalization, um, the the legal market has been growing uh, each and every year. We said it would be an evolutionary process. Uh, there are now 377 stores uh, in the province, so the ability to access uh, cannabis legally uh, is greater than ever before. Um, this time, or in March of last year, the province sold about twenty million dollars um this March a year later we were about 43 million dollars so the uh, the legal market is is growing um, I think significantly the um, you know there's still that, uh, that that illegal market out there um, we've seen in other jurisdictions such as Colorado for example which is similar to British Columbia when it comes to cannabis um, that it, it, it took about, about after about four years the illegal market had about 70% percent uh, share so it's it's an ongoing thing but the bottom line is is when people need to understand, when you buy from a, a legal store, you know what you're getting. When you go to an, an illicit store, you don't know what you're getting. Um, you don't know what you're getting. And, and, you know, things like pesticides and lead and arsenic, that should concern people.
2: So is this part of a campaign then to kind of ramp up that information to get that message out there?
8: Yeah, no, you will be seeing uh, um, uh, a ramping up of information and and, and, and raising public awareness uh, uh, around this issue. Um, you know, it's, uh, legalization took place for, for a reason, which was to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, that, that cannabis is regulated, uh, done so in a safe way, and that uh, the product that people are buying uh, uh, meets, the, uh, meets health cannabis standards and is safe for consumption. Uh, and, you know, the illegal product, uh, you don't know what you're getting.
2: Do you think the price is the difference? Is that why people are buying the illegal product?
8: Um, there's all kinds of reasons why uh, 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 people have, have uh, you know, buy illegal product. But the, the price in, in cannabis uh, uh, legally is, 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 is quite competitive, has come down a lot. Uh, there's a significant uh, increase in the range of product uh, that is out there. Um, you know, the, the, the producers, um, uh, more varieties Ever now, in this strains uh, are available in stores in this province than ever before, in fact, I think we probably have the most in the country, uh, so there really is no reason to uh, to use the illicit market when uh, it's you know there 's now they said three hundred and seventy seven stores in uh, in British Columbia. Uh, that are legal or who are employing people legally, uh, paying taxes legally. The money's going to, uh, you know, it's not going to uh, potentially organize crime or or people who are engaged in, uh, you know, uh, practices that are resulting in cannabis containing pesticides and heavy metals, for example.
2: Well, listen, thanks for your time on that this morning.
8: My pleasure.
2: Appreciate that, Mike Farnworth, Minister of Public Safety, Solicitor General. This is a really interesting pilot project that they did. So they sent 20 cannabis samples that had been seized from illegal pot shops to a federally licensed lab for testing, and they found the presence of 24 different pesticides, along with unacceptable levels of bacteria, fungi, and heavy metals. Just three of those 20 samples would have even met federal standards for sale in a legal store. Nine would have been outright rejected, they said. Eight would have required further investigation. Uh, But just two of the 20 samples had no detectable pesticide residue on them. Very different against their analysis of legal cannabis, which detected two pesticides in eight of 63 samples that they had tested, right?
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We know that old growth logging has been really in the news this week upon hearing that First Nations and the provincial government have decided they're going to defer old growth logging in the Ferry Creek area along with the Walburn Valley. but What about other areas of the province? Well, the Squamish Nation has some thoughts on that. Actually, they are also asking for something similar. Joining us now is Chief Leah George Wilson, Chief of the tsleil Nation. Thank you for being here this morning.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: And what is it that you're asking the provincial government to do? Well,
4: Slowitif has been actually working on a land use plan in the Indian River watershed with the province of B.C., and the plan is close to completion, and we want to see the old growth in the watershed protected. We don't actually have a lot of old growth because in the Indian River watershed it's been logged heavily Fifty or sixty years ago, but what remains, we'd like to see protected.
2: And so, you've made that clear to the provincial government. What has the response been?
4: Uh, well, we're working on this land use plan, so we'll see when when it comes to completion. But I mean, they're aware of what our intentions are.
2: Were you were you feeling better about it once you saw what happened with Fairy Creek in the Walburn Valley?
4: Uh, yes. I actually co-chair at the First Nations Summit, and one of the resolutions that came to the floor yesterday was uh, governance and stewardship responsibilities in New Territory. So it was the chiefs from those three communities, Huayit, Dididat, and Pachydat, came to um, seek support from the chiefs for their um, agreement with, well, actually, they have a whole plan for their watershed making them, well, confirming their responsibilities to their land in the same way that Sliwautik and Squamish have responsibilities to our respective lands.
2: So is this something that you think we're going to be seeing and hearing more about? Yes, because
4: especially because of DRIPA, the Declaration Act, as well as um, the UN Declaration. But Indigenous people, you know, we have our own our own laws and our laws say to protect our lands and uh, and our waters. And this is what protecting old growth does. It protects our land and our water.
2: And do you think this protection is critical for the area that you're looking at for the land use plan?
4: For sure. Um, we don't have, like I said, we don't have very much old growth like they do over on Vancouver Island in those new Chong territories. But old growth, it's not just about big trees. They literally are representations or snapshots of what our territory looked like prior to colonization. As our ancestors and histories are woven into soil, plants, animals, and trees of these forests, they're, they're important to Sliwata. They're a part of who we are.
2: I look forward to hearing more about this. Thank you for your time on that this morning.
4: My pleasure. Have a good one.
2: You too. That's Chief Leah George Wilson, uh, Chief of the tsleil Nation, talking about how they are, the Squamish Nation, asking the provincial government to defer old growth logging for two years as well, given that that is now what is going on. They say they have 78,000 hectares of forest that are at risk, and they are in their land use plan working on that as well. We are going to be hearing more about this.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: All right, Raji hall back with us now with some good news in the city of Vancouver, especially if you're a reader, you like to go to the library. Good morning, Raji.
9: Good morning, Simi. Yeah, really cool event for two weeks uh, being put on by the Vancouver Public Library. It's a fine forgiveness campaign, and it starts on Monday. It runs for two weeks, like I said, and basically they're trying to welcome back patrons with blocked library cards, library cards that have been blocked because they have fines. So that's anybody who has a fine of more than $10 and they're offering to reset their accounts. Pretty cool, huh?
2: Yeah, that is really cool because that does stop a lot of people, I'm sure, from going to the library.
9: A lot. You know how many people are affected? 70,000 library users are impacted by fines. Yeah. And one in 10 patrons have lost their ability to borrow material due to fines that are over $10. So many people and Simi, um, they say that COVID has really affected people, uh, in this regard. So a lot of people, you know, wanted, sought out that community of going to the library, wanted their, their books and whatnot and other materials too, right? Like DVDs and, um, some libraries do, uh, rentals of, or borrowing privileges over puzzles and fun things like that. Well, uh, they have found that uh, some people, that $10 is is a really big deal. It's the choice between, you know, paying for some of life's necessities or paying that fine. Are you a library user?
2: I am not. I was back in the day, but when I had kids, it became more difficult to juggle, you know, going to the library and all of that. They were great library users, but um, I just loved going to the library with them when they were younger.
9: Yeah. I fell out of going to the library just before I had kids. And then it was, again, yeah, having kids. And I thought, oh, I really want them to be around books. And so we use the library a ton. We also rack up uh, fines at some libraries. But my local library recently went to fine free. And I found, if anything, I'm actually returning the books early or on Mm -hmm. time now. Just the just the goodwill there, knowing that, hey, I want someone else to use this, and there's no shame associated with it anymore. because fines aren't just about money. They're not just about the amount. There's also uh, it's not just the amount of money. It's the value that's placed on being late. On something that's a social obligation like we know we're supposed to return our books on time but we don't always anyway if your fines are too high at vpl you you lose borrowing privileges and i asked christina de castell the chief librarian at vpl what the threshold is and how it hinders people from accessing the library here's our interview
10: well if you have more than ten dollars in fines then you're not able to borrow and that can happen very quickly if someone loses a book But if we look at in uh, lots of people have less than $10 of fines, and so they're able to keep on borrowing. But for some people, just the fear of $10 of fines is enough to stop them from borrowing altogether. So that's really something that we're trying to address through this event. And if they're struggling at, at any time, we really want to have a conversation with people.
9: Why do people return things late?
10: There are so many reasons people return things late, they might have lost them in their car, lost them in their bookshelves, but also things just come up in people's lives. Sometimes we hear that someone has been admitted to the hospital and that's why they haven't been able to return their books on time or just But so many things happen and it's very rarely is it the case that they could have done anything about that. So we really want to give people that opportunity to have those fines forgiven.
9: So I've heard that um, number crunching at other branches has shown that it costs more to chase late fees. It costs the library more in just handling it administratively. Has VPL found that too?
10: We have not done an analysis of the costs of gathering late fees, but it is a significant part of what our circulation staff spend time doing so those conversations about paying fines and clearing fines really are a big part of of what we end up having staff doing in all of our branches and at our central library so it's um, it certainly makes sense that other libraries have found that when they've delved into the amount of time that, that fines take.
9: I'm so curious about the psychology behind returning road items back late to the library. Some people feel ashamed when they realize that they've hung on to a book past due date. Of course, I'm putting my hand up for that one. And then um, they'll even avoid the library afterwards sometimes if the fines are too high. And that seems like a huge impairment for them to enjoy not just books, but the community libraries can provide too. Is there any desire to create a fine-free initiative that's permanent?
10: There absolutely is. We're looking at ways to fund a permanent fine-free model. The VPL board considered this as a priority in the 2021 budget process, and I'm expecting our board to consider it a priority again for 2022. So we'll be taking that decision to them in the coming weeks. When council provided funding for this event, For 2021, the councillors asked us to bring back the idea of fine-free service for them to consider for 2022. It makes sense for us to undertake this fine forgiveness event now so people can return to borrowing from the library, even though we can't do it on a permanent basis yet. Overdue fines are presenting additional barriers for people who rely on library service. And that means that a lot of people who really would be benefiting the most from the library right now are avoiding using our services. That shame that you, t- that you talked about, it's something we really see from people who have fines, that they will avoid the library altogether just because they know that they returned a book late. And we want to erase that. We want to
2: give people a fresh start. Yeah, okay, What a great initiative then. So, Roger, what do we know about the demographics of people who owe fines?
9: the fines disproportionately impact those facing economic and social barriers. So 30% of all blocked cardholders actually live in for Vancouver's lowest income neighborhoods, So it's really impacting the people who are also in general being impacted by COVID the most economically too. So there's a direct correlation there. It's awesome that they're doing this. There is one caveat though, Simi, it's not done automatically. So if you're hearing this story and you want to have your fines dismissed, you want your to participate in the fine forgiveness program at VPL, you actually have to call in visit in person or check out the details online so that they can do it for you because it's not automatic right. Um, All right. across the board.
2: I love this. All right. Great one. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That is Raji Sohal talking about the Vancouver Public Library's Fine Forgiveness Initiative going on June the 14th to the 27th. And if you are one of those people, please do check it out and get that library card up and running again.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Are we getting better at rescuing food? We've heard all the stories, right, about the amounts of food that get wasted in North America. It's awful. You've probably seen this yourself in your own fridge, in your own home. Perfectly good product and, you know, produce and other things just being thrown out. But in recent years, there have been a number of programs that have tried to put that food to good use. So as part of our series about food inequality this week, we're going to talk about food recovery and redistribution with our next guest. It's Julia Hunter, Executive Director with the Food Stash Foundation. Julia, thank you for being here. Thanks, you for having me on. What is the Food Stash Foundation?
11: Food Stash Foundation is a registered charity. We're operating in Vancouver. And what we do is we rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, mainly perishable food, like as you mentioned, fruits, veggies, meat, dairy, and then we redistribute it to other local nonprofits as well as food insecure households across the city.
2: And how long have you been doing this for?
11: Foodstaff started in 2016, uh, so we're just entering our fifth year in operation. And how successful
2: would you say you've been?
11: Uh, I mean, we've been very successful. It's a double-edged sword and, and something that we're proud of. but At the same time, it just illustrates the need for... Um, for someone to come in and, and connect the dots between all this food that's going to waste as well as people who need access to food. Um, and so we've grown quite a lot over the last five years. When we first started, our founder, David Shine, was rescuing about ten to 12,000 p- Pounds of food per month. Um, and now, as we enter our fifth year, we're rescuing over 70,000 pounds of perishable food from going to waste every single month.
2: Oh, that's amazing. But okay, when we say rescuing food, what does that mean exactly? Like, where are we rescuing food from? Yeah, yeah.
11: So, mainly we partner with grocery stores, and this food is uh, surplus. So, usually it's approaching its best before a date. Uh, for produce, maybe it has a blemish on it or bruise still edible and, and healthy, of course, but um, that food would otherwise be taken off the shelves and and go to waste and so what we do is we come in and we rescue it. We also partner with some wholesalers as well as some farms seasonally throughout the summer months
2: are the are the producers and manufacturers are they also getting better at this or like in pointing out that hey, you know what we 're not we don't want to throw this out, come and take it. I think the
11: momentum is gaining here in Vancouver, especially as well as Canada to be more responsible about this food. As you know, so much uh, time, energy and resources go into growing this food, to distributing it, to getting it onto the shelves for people to purchase and consume. So I think the momentum is gaining. I also think there's still a ton of work that needs to be done in this area for sure.
2: Okay, how do we do that work? What kind of work? So right off the bat,
11: um, of course, food recovery isn't the sustainable long-term solution. So we're looking, Food Stash especially, to do some more work in preventative uh, programs to try to stop food waste at the source. We also realize that the true cause, root cause of food insecurity is poverty. And so I think on the food waste level and with our food systems, we need to start to redesign and reconstruct these systems in a way that puts the people and our planet first before profit, because at the end of the day, our food system as it stands currently uh, puts profit first. It also puts the output and how much food we're producing over, um, over the people and our planet. So I think those are our top priorities uh, leading into the next few years.
2: Right. Cause there's food weight that gets wasted, like every step along the supply chain, isn't there? Mm-hmm.
11: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Right from production through manufacturing, distribution to the retail level, and then uh, at the household level as well.
2: Yeah. And in our household level, is what can we do? I mean, I've, I've been trying really hard to do this, right, where I tell people, eat what's in the fridge. You got to eat what's in the fridge. We can't. Yes. Like, we're not, we've all, we, had, we really have been focusing more on that in recent years. Do we all need to think about doing more? Mm hmm.
11: I mean, I think it's important. I also think uh, from a broader lens, our our current mindset as a society, um, we're we're not totally connected to where our food comes from, and so maybe we don't think about uh, the effects and the gravity of wasting food. And so I think everyone um, could always use more of that. Connecting with food. Uh, knowing all the time, energy and resources that go into it, and truly valuing food and, and, and what it's there to do, which is nourish ourselves. And so I think at the household level, um, there's some folks that do r- really well and are, and are on top of it. Um, but we also need to realize that it, it can be time-consuming. And for a lot of people that are just uh, trying to pay rent, maybe are, are trying to balance three jobs or take care of their family, uh, there needs to be a more sustainable solution in place.
2: Right. Julie, what was the pandemic then like for Food Stash Foundation? Because you didn't have all the restaurants and everything open. I guess there wasn't, was there not as much food waste?
11: Last year in about March to May was the busiest we've ever been. Um, When restaurants started to close down, um, there was a lot of food in those fridges that they otherwise would have used, of course, to make meals and, and serve their customers that, was suddenly just sitting there with nowhere to go. Uh, grocery stores. There was a huge fluctuation because there was that moment of time where people were buying a lot of stuff and hoarding kind of products at home just in case we right. were shut down. There was a lot of um, unknowns at that time, and so what we saw was a huge influx of food waste at the restaurant level. Uh, And then at the grocery level, there was probably a couple weeks where it was actually low because so much was being purchased. And then I think what happened was grocery stores were trying uh, to then order more product to satisfy the demand that was happening at the store level. And then so after that, was a massive surge in surplus product because over-purchasing dropped off or leveled off. And then there was all this product that had been ordered that then had nowhere to go. So it was quite a roller coaster ride. Uh, It was tons of fluctuation. It's kind of leveled out now, especially at the grocery store level. Um, I think they've kind of gotten that under control. But certainly at the start of the pandemic was... Um, a lot of changes, week to week, even. Right. It was pretty crazy.
2: Yeah. But what was demand like? So you've got all this food that you can definitely repurpose, but how many people were asking for the service?
11: Yeah, so we partner with over 20 nonprofits and then we have about 90 households on our food box delivery programs. And so what we noticed is at the organizational level, a lot of our partners who currently were running food programs were looking to scale and meet the demand in their communities. Um, So they're requiring or needing more food to service that need. Uh, There's also organizations that we hadn't previously partnered with that were then launching these food programs uh, and prioritizing food above potentially other programs that they're running in the past. So there is was a massive need at the organizational level and trying to support as many partners as we can, uh, some of whom are afford- affordable housing providers, maybe resource centers, uh, community food hubs, organizations of that nature. Um, and at the household level, there there was a demand and a bit of a wait list on our food box delivery programs. We also heard from our partners that there was um, individuals lining up just to access these programs, and that demand just steadily increased over the last year. Uh, it never truly leveled out. And so I think the demand was felt both from our partners, mm-hmm. uh, new and uh, new and existing, and then also um, households that were suddenly in a situation, whether it was due to unemployment or uh, children having to do school from home and then lack of childcare, health challenges. There was just so many changes uh, and struggles felt
2: um, across Vancouver, for sure. So how can people pitch in and help? What do you need?
11: We're always looking for volunteers. So I know BC is reopening. Uh, We're in the first few phases of that. And so that's really helped us welcome a couple more new faces into, into our volunteer programs. We also just moved into um, a new facility on west second avenue quite central in vancouver and so we're always looking for volunteers to come out we sort through all of our rescued food uh every single week and then that food gets packaged up into these rescued food boxes that then get delivered by volunteers to households across the city so we have volunteers at every stage of that program. Right. Uh, and then, of course, donations as well. Um, we, we're always looking uh, for monthly donors to support our cause. Um, we also find that when you donate monthly and you engage with our newsletters and our content, uh, you can start to rate up on why we're here, what we're doing, and maybe get inspired um, for some local action in your own community.
2: Oh I love it. All right, Julia, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on, Simi. I appreciate it.